At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, today we're going to be concluding a series that we began a number of weeks ago. And some of you are going, yes, we're finally going to finish it. Uh, But we're going to be in the seventh week of this series that we have called The New Way. This series is walking through Galatians chapters 3 and 4. And in these verses, we have seen Paul walk through some pretty technical things, but he walked through them to communicate some very important truths. And, And the main truth that he was wanting to communicate is that the new way of Jesus is superior to the old way of the law. And he he made that point to invite the Galatians, and, and because it's been preserved for you and I, to invite you and I to live not according to just some old dead set of rules, but to live according to the new way of Jesus with his spirit empowering our lives, living out our identities as sons of God. Now, we're, we're going to see the last installment of that today as we look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. But before we look at those verses, which are really the, the concluding illustration to this entire section, I want to talk with you for just a moment about an appliance that many of you have in your house that demonstrates a level of privileges that you have in your family. And that appliance, of course, is a refrigerator. It's a refrigerator. Now, that appliance communicates something because who has access to it now in our family my son does not need to ask my permission to access my fridge right if he wants something from there he just goes and he opens it and he reaches in and he grabs it and he takes it out and he eats it or he drinks it that's the right that he has as a son that refrigerator is just as much his as it is mine But when friends come over to our house, they don't have that same access. They have to ask permission. It's not uncommon for Josh to have his buddies over, and and there'll be a moment where they might say, hey, could we have something to drink, or could we have something to eat? And when those questions come, uh, they have to be granted permission to access. Why? Because they're neighbors. That's what neighbors do. Sons, direct access. Neighbors need to ask permission. Now, I tell you that story today, and I reflect on that. It's probably a similar dynamic in your house. I tell you that story today because I think it has hints to this entire section of God's Word. You see, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and the Galatians had grown up kind of as neighbors to the nation of Israel. They had grown up as outsiders. And now that they had come to faith in Christ, they still were approaching their relationship with God like they were a neighbor. They still were approaching God as if he was the Israelites' God, and they had to ask permission to to access his spirit in some way. And Paul is going back again and again and again in this section, reminding them, no, 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 you're not a slave. You're not a neighbor. You're a son. You have access to the God who created you directly through Christ. You can go to him. You can access his spirit for power in your life. You can communicate with him directly in prayer. You have refrigerator rights, Galatians, to God. Now, the same thing could be said of us. Friends, it's possible that we have grown up and we think that the God that is out there is someone else's God or someone else has closer access to him than us. We're we're a neighbor. We're not a son. We 
have to ask permission to, to do anything with God. Others might be closer than we are. That's, that's how we think. Or that we must access God only by some list of to-dos or to-don'ts. But the reality, friends, is if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have direct access to God. You are His Son. You're connected to Him. You're an heir according to the promise. Now, that's the main point of this entire section of Galatians. But in the verses we're going to look at today in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, Paul concludes that section with an illustration, and he drives home some important points for us to consider, even as we think of taking this section of God's Word and anchoring it in our souls and applying it appropriately to our lives. So I want to read these verses for us as we conclude this series, and then I want to go back and make three observations from these verses. Now, before I read them, I want to just acknowledge that these are some hard verses, some of the hardest in Galatians for our ears to understand, because there's people and there's places referenced that we might not understand. But my hope is by the time we conclude our time today, that God will illuminate these words so that we might understand them a little more, and we might apply them to our lives. So Paul writes to his friends in Galatia, and this is what he says. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear and break forth, and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, friends, in those 11 verses, we're going to see uh, three things today as we anchor this series uh, to our lives. What are those three things? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is this. In Christ, we are sons, not slaves. In Christ, we are sons and not slaves. Now, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you know that this has been a repetitive theme inside of Galatians chapters 3 and 4. But if you've missed the last couple of Sundays, the last several Sundays as we've walked through this series, let me just highlight that when I say sons here, I mean sons. And some of you might be going, but I'm a woman. And I go, exactly. The point that Paul is making in this section is that the sons in the era of the first century were the heirs. They were the ones who had access to the resources of the father. And Paul goes out of his way to let us know that whether we are male or female, whether we are Jew or Gentile, whatever our background, whatever our socioeconomic status, if we are in Christ, then we are sons 
heirs of the promise of God, recipients of his Holy Spirit coming to reside within us, forgiveness of God freely granted to us. Paul says, in Christ we are sons, we're not slaves. We're not people who just have to do a bunch of things on a to-do list for God that our only access to him is just that we do a bunch of stuff. But we actually have access to God relationally because our identity has shifted from a slave to a son. Now, in order to, to, to drive this point home, he, he ends this whole section with, with that very point. He said, so brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That Paul's talking to the Galatians. He says, friends, we are not slaves, but we are free. We're not slaves, but we're sons. We're heirs according to the promise. This is who we are. But in order to make this point a little more vivid to the Galatians and to us, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Paul uses an example. And the example he uses is of the life of the man Abraham and his wife Sarah, their servant Hagar, and two children, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, when Paul used that illustration, he used it because it communicated a lot to the original recipients of this letter, they would have been familiar with that story. And honestly, we're somewhat familiar with it too, right? I mean, if you went to Sunday school as a child or you are in a one-year Bible reading plan, you probably at least made it through the first 20 chapters of Genesis and you would have been familiar with the story of Abraham and all of those people. But we might not be so familiar with it that we just swim in those waters. And so it's helpful for us before we begin to unpack this illustration of Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac, for us to go back and think a little bit about the timeline of Abraham's life. So Abraham is someone who is representative of this person that God initiated graciously with. Abraham had not done something to impress God. God just stepped out and initiated a relationship with him. And God gave Abraham a promise. God said, Abraham, you're going to go and I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. And, and when I make of you this, this mighty nation, you're going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And you're going to go to the land that I'm going to show you. So God gave this big promise to Abraham. Now, God gave that promise in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was about 75 years old and when Sarah, his wife, was about 65 years old. So when they get this promise... It sounds strange to them. Now, it didn't sound strange just that they would move. I mean, we recently as a family have moved, and I can tell you if somebody told me I had to move today, I would not be happy or excited. It's, it's, it's a hard process, right? But, but the fact that they were to move, even to a, a faraway country, would not have been the strangest sounding thing that God said to Abraham and Sarah. The strangest sounding sounding thing to Abraham and Sarah would have been that they were going to be blessed with many descendants. Because when God gives them this promise, you know how many kids they had? Make this with me. Zero. They had zero kids. They had an empty tent. And so into their empty tent, God says, I'm going to bless you with so many descendants that the stars of the sky are the best way to think about how many descendants I'm going to give you. But he's 75, and she is 65. The biological clock, friends, was ticking, right? So what happens next? I mean, if he's 75 and she's 65, wouldn't you expect 
that they would get right on that promise that God would just immediately bless her womb and open it up and they'd be able to have a child because, you know, taking care of a baby at 75 would be tough, but maybe doable, maybe doable, right? And so they're thinking, you know, maybe it would happen immediately. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. As a matter of fact, when Abraham is 86 and Sarah is 76, they still don't have a child. And so Sarah comes up with an idea. He says, okay, God said we're supposed to have a lot of kids, right? Abraham, that's what he said to you? Yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said. Okay, well, I've got a plan. Apparently, he wants to leave this into our department to make that happen. So I've got this servant named Hagar. Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And then a child will be born of you into our household. And maybe that is how God will fulfill his promise. And so Hagar and Abraham come together. And the result is that a son, Ishmael, is born. But when Ishmael is born, God is very clear that Ishmael will not be the one that will fulfill that promise. So what happened next? Well, guess what happened? 14 more years go by. 14 more years with just Ishmael in the house. At the end of those 14 years, God says, okay, now's the time. Now's the time, Abraham. Now's the time? 190? Now's the time. Your womb is going to open, Sarah, and you will conceive a child. And that child will be the child of promise. Now, when we look at this, right, we look at this and say, 25 years, God was very slow about his promise. But that's not what was happening. God wasn't delaying. God wasn't trying to conjure up some magic formula. You know what God was doing? God was adding the extra time to make it quite clear that the child would be a child of promise, not a child of the flesh. 100-year-olds and 90-year-olds don't have kids unless God says it's going to happen. Now, You might argue that 86-year-olds and 76-year-olds don't. But certainly 100-year-olds and 90-year-olds don't have kids. And so God comes in this situation, and he blesses them with a child. To drive home this point, Romans 4, 19, Paul comments on this, and he says, you did not weaken in faith when when, uh, uh, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham believed this promise of God, and God opened Sarah's womb and gave them the child. The child was a child of promise, and that was the point. See, friends, in this whole section, we have been called the children of Abraham. Here, we're reminded we're children like Isaac, born not of the flesh. In other words, it's not about us doing something to impress God. It's not about us taking matters into our own hands. But if we are connected to God, it's because God has given us a promise. God has done for us what we are unable to do on our own. God has made us have access to him. He has given us a rebirth, a born again life in Christ. That's the point. And the birth of Isaac becomes an amazing object lesson illustrate this inside of history. Now, when Paul walks through all of this, there's a couple of things I want you to remember. One is this entire account of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah and um, Isaac and Ishmael 
that that entire account is a historical account. So it actually happened. These people are all real. They're not just, you know, some, you know, story that was made up. It's a historical account. But also we need to know that this story is recorded as it accurately happened. So there are components of this story that are God's best, and there are components of this story where people have sinned. But inside of this entire story, Paul sees an analogy that is helpful for us in understanding the fact that we are sons of God and not slaves. So how is that allegory connected inside of these verses? Well, let's look at that inside of this. So Paul writes to them and he says there are two general categories of people. One of those categories of people are connected to Hagar and Ishmael. Now, the Hagar-Ishmael kind of folks are those who are living according to the old way of the law. It's very clear about that. They're the old way of the law, the law was given at Mount Sinai. Uh, he goes through all that. It's the old way of the law. Those who are living according to the old way of the law are those like Hagar and Ishmael. And they are living as slaves to that law. In other words, they have a list of do's. They have a list of don'ts that they are enslaved to. But it's not giving them life. As a matter of fact, it's just weighing them down. It's a heavy burden. It's not a supportive structure. Because they're trying to live out the demands of that law according to their flesh. Like Sarah who gives Hagar to Abraham and says, Sleep with her that we might take matters into our own hands. So also this situation, if we look to the law in order in our efforts with it in order to lead to our salvation, it is a similar way. It's working only according to our flesh. We're enslaved to a law, an old way that is going nowhere. And then he goes so far as to say that this old way of the law is represented by the earthly Jerusalem. Now, why would he say that? He would say that because what was in Jerusalem? Jerusalem, that city just down the road, what what was there? In the middle of that town was a very prominent building, the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. And Paul saw the temple and everything that had emanated out of it as an expression of this system, of this way. And those who found their hope in a temple... Those who found their hope according to their flesh found themselves only enslaved to a law and it was going nowhere. As a matter of fact, this earthly Jerusalem was only about 20 years away from complete destruction when Paul wrote this letter. And so Paul writes and says, there is one way of living that looks like this. But then Paul says, that's the way that the Judaizers are living, that the opponents legalists. That's the way that they are living. But Paul says, that's not you, Galatians. You're not like Hagar and Ishmael. You're not living according to the old way. You're not enslaved to the law. You're not, you don't have access to only your flesh and what you can accomplish. And your home is not in earthly Jerusalem. God has done something even greater for you. He says, you are like the child of Sarah. You're like Isaac, a, a child of promise. You're living according to the new way of Jesus. You've been freed from the law and even its consequences that you might be given a promise of becoming a recipient of God's Holy Spirit residing within you. And your home is not in an earthly city that is soon to be destroyed, but your home is in heaven 
where you have a, not just a past, but you have a future. It says, why in the world would you want to identify with this when this is who you are? And friends, the same thing might be said of us. Why in the world would we want to float back to just old, dead, law-keeping religion when we have access to freedom and life and sonship and the possession of the Holy Spirit inside of us, empowering us to the life that God has called us to live with a home that is forever in heaven? Paul's argument inside of this is, friends, we are like Sarah and Isaac. We are not like Hagar and Ishmael. May we not float back to the old when we have access to the new. And yet, the old has some appeal to us, doesn't it? At least it seems to, because all too often we float back into those legalistic ways, translating our spiritual life to just a list of do's and don'ts, even when God wants something much more for us. Now, throughout this series, we've talked about legalism. And I think it's helpful for us maybe before we leave this section to to talk a bit about what a legalist is and what legalism really is all about. Warren Wiersbe helps us understand this a little bit more when he says, legalism is one of the major problems among Christians today. We must keep in mind that legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping these standards and thinking that we are spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. A person can refrain from smoking, drinking, and gambling, for example, and still not be spiritual. The Pharisees had high standards, and yet they crucified Jesus. See, the the issue was was not the setting of a standard or, or an understanding that God had pointed a direction for us to go, but it was walking in our own power to get there or even worshiping that standard instead of worshiping God and looking to that standard to provide our life instead of the God who created us. To further underline this point and idea, Tim Keller gives us some helpful categories. He says, basically, there are four categories of people. He says, one of the categories of people are law-obeying and law-relying. These were like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. These were like the Judaizers who were working among the Galatians, trying to take people away from the gospel. They are people who were were trying to do everything the law said, but they were relying on their own efforts to fulfill the law in order to be saved. Then there are other people who are law disobeying and law relying. These are people who understand they're not living the law out, but they are still trying to use the law to reconcile themselves with God. So they live their lives somewhat defeated. The next group would be those who are law disobeying, but law not relying. These are people that don't really believe that there is a God that they will ever have to give an account to. And so they just do their own thing. And the last group of people are those who are living out the law to the best of their abilities, but they're not relying on that for their salvation. Now, this was true inside of Judaism, but this also is true inside of all of our understanding of religion. Even our New Testament has a number of different commands inside of it. But God's desire in that is to point a direction away for us, but not for us to rely on our efforts in that way, but instead for us to rely on Him for our salvation. So we have this temptation for us to pursue these legalistic paths, but what Paul says is he says Christianity is not legalism. 
It's not just a list of do's and don'ts that we rely on. Christianity is a relationship with God made possible for what, by what God has done for us in Christ and the provision of his Holy Spirit in our lives that leads to a spiritual harvest that goes beyond what we would be able to accomplish on our own. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1 is quoted by Paul in Galatians 4, 27. He says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, in Christ we have hope for more than what our flesh can produce. The true Christian life sees God do through us and in us and produces fruit in us things that would otherwise be impossible for us. It's a supernatural life where, I, where our identity has gone from being a slave to being a son. So the first thing that we see in light of these verses is that in Christ we are sons and not slaves. But after that summary illustration, Paul draws two applications that I think we need to also see in here today. What are those applications? Well, the first of those applications is this. In Christ, expect opposition from religious insiders. In Christ, expect opposition from religious insiders. Now, we see this very clearly in verse 29. In verse 29, says this, he says, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. He's going back and talking about Ishmael and Isaac. See, when Ishmael was born, he was the child who was born according to the flesh. Well, he was born, he was about 14 years older than Isaac. When Isaac was three years old, he was weaned. In, in their culture, when the child was weaned, there was a ceremony or a celebration of that milestone. And so they were at this ceremony celebrating that point when Ishmael looks at Isaac and begins to mock him. He begins to look down upon him. He begins to make fun of him. And in that moment, we see illustrated that the one who is of the flesh has problems with the one who is of the promise. And Paul has seen that pattern repeat itself from Ishmael and Isaac all the way down to the present day. Those who were living according to the flesh, persecuting those who were living according to the Spirit. This was true of Jesus. Jesus came, of course, as the perfect expression of the one living according to the Spirit. And yet, what did the religious leaders living according to the flesh do with him? They crucified him right? Opposition came because of that difference. The child according to the flesh persecuting the one according to the Spirit. That was also true in the terms of of Paul's ministry, right? Paul had gone among the Galatians, and the, the account of Paul's ministry in Galatia is recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14. What was Paul's experience in Galatia? Well, his experience in Galatia was, first of all, he was persecuted in one of the towns of Galatia, a town by the name of Pisidian Antioch. In Acts 13, 44 through 50, sees this growing opposition in that town. He was tried, they tried to stone him in the town of Iconium in Acts chapter 14, verses 2 through 5. He slips out of that town and goes to Lystra, but in Lystra they actually laid hands on him 
and they stoned him, taking to him within a few inches of his life. Now, who was it that was leading the charge against Paul in this moment? It was the religious insiders. It was the unbelieving Jews who were persecuting Paul just as they had persecuted Christ. So the principle is established early on that the ones who are living according to the flesh have a problem with the ones living according to the Spirit. And if that's true, then have we seen any other evidence of that inside of history? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Think about the time around the, uh, the era of the Reformation. There was a, a, a man by the name of John Huss who was burned at the stake in 1415. What was the crime that John Huss had committed? Well, the crime that he had committed was he had this crazy belief that people could have direct access to God. They didn't need to go through the priest in order to have access to God, that in Christ they could relate to him. In Christ they could read the Scriptures themselves. These crazy thoughts that we take for granted today. Huss just saw verses like Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he asserted that truth and that reality. And he was burned at the stake for that. Who killed him? Not religious outsiders, but religious insiders inside the church. Similar things would transpire with William Tyndale some 21 years later. And so persecution of those living according to the Spirit by those living according to the flesh has quite a bit of history, even inside of the church. But it's not always religious insiders inside the church that provide that persecution. When we think of the world today, it is often the religious insiders of other religions who are persecuting the followers of Jesus today around the world. You realize that some statistics that I saw online this week indicate that maybe as many as a million or more Christians have died in the last 10 years around the world. That is an incredible number, about 100,000 a year. Now, Who was it that was leading the persecution against them? Often it was members of other religions around the world, insiders to those religions who see a threat to the Spirit of God at work among the believers, and they want to snuff out the New Way Jesus movement. Those experiences have not been quite as dramatic for you and me, but as God has begun to work in your life, And as your faith has gone from something just on the inside of you to something working its way out into the way that you relate and interact with others, my guess is that you have experienced some opposition as well. And if not, you will experience that at some point in your life. And so what do we do? How do we we take this idea in, in knowing that this is coming? How do we respond? Well, the one thing that I would I would encourage us to do first is to recalibrate our compass. To recalibrate our compass. If we think that being a believer in Jesus is something that everybody around us is going to cheer, then we are mistaken. There is real opposition to Jesus. It led to Jesus' crucifixion, and it ultimately could lead to our persecution as well. So we need to recalibrate our compass and and just understand that as we walk with God, as we are maturing in Christ, that we might experience opposition in our workplace or in our neighborhood or in our family or in our fraternity house or sorority house or dorm or team. As our faith is working its way out, there may be opposition that we will face. 
Because the same world that rejected Christ is still at work. The same spirit of the flesh that was at work in Ishmael is still at work persecuting believers today. And so we need to recalibrate. That's why Paul said in Galatians 1.10, he said, I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm seeking the approval of God. I'm not trying to please man at all. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we need to recalibrate our expectation of who we are serving. But a second thing we need to do in response to this is look to the bigger reward. Look to the bigger reward. You know, there were, were moments in their lives where Ishmael certainly looked like he had it better than Isaac did. I mean, just think of the moment where Isaac would be offered up as a sacrifice. Now, God provided a substitute, but in that moment, Ishmael sure looked like he had the better deal than Isaac did. And yet, when we look at it in the grand sweep, we understand that it is Isaac, the child of the promise that we celebrate today. It is Isaac who had the experience of redemption that you and I long for. And so, we need to look to the bigger reward. Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, And if, we, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so we look to the reward that comes in eternity. And so we see that in Christ we can expect opposition. But there's a second application that Paul mentions in these verses. That second application is this. In Christ, do not allow legalism a seat at your table. Do not allow legalism a seat at your table. In other words, there were those who were promoting the old way. And Paul says, you are not to take those promoting the old way and give them a significant position of influence in your life. But you are to, 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 to reject that perspective because it's not good for you. It does not lead to life. And the anchor point for that is found in verse 30. He says, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free. What did Sarah do when Ishmael was mocking Isaac? She didn't say, well, I guess we better just allow Ishmael to eat at the 11 a.m. shift and Isaac will then eat at noon. I guess Ishmael can just live on those five acres and the rest of it will be Isaac's. She didn't give Ishmael a reduced influence at her table. She said, Ishmael has no place at this table. And so the young man, Ishmael, is kicked out of that family because his influence of mocking and persecution would have been a terrible environment for Isaac to grow up. What's Paul's point in this? Paul's point in this is, he says, Galatians, you are inviting Ishmael to sit at your table and to influence you. You're inviting those legalists to teach your Sunday school class and lead your Bible studies. Stop that. Stop it. All of this stuff that they are promoting, stop allowing it to have this significant influence in your life. Instead, go back to the Jesus way. Why was he so strong about that? Because the other way was not leading to life. It would lead to their spiritual harm. If you were thirsty, and it's hot outside, right? If you're thirsty and you were to say, I have these two items. One of them is a gallon of gasoline and the other is a bottle of Dasani. Which should I drink? You would not say, whatever you want. You would say, drink the Dasani and get 
the fuel away from your mouth. Why? Because the sani will give you life. Gasoline in that environment would bring you death. In a very similar way, Paul says in this moment, he says, don't mix legalism with the way of faith. One of them brings life. The other brings death. Live in the life of the gospel. That's his point. Now, what do we do in light of that? The first thing I would encourage us to do in light of that is to believe in the gospel. Jesus is the way. He is the way for our salvation. If you're here today and you long to have a relationship with God, you want to be connected with him, you want to have the hope of of a home that is in heaven that will not spoil or, or be done away with, then know that that comes through faith in Christ. And so believe in him for your salvation. What's the second application of this? Believe in the gospel. Now, Jesus is still the way. This is true for us in terms of our growth in our relationship with with God. We came to Christ by grace through faith. We grow by grace through faith. So go back to the gospel. Receive the forgiveness of Christ for our, our falling short and depend upon the Spirit to empower us to live the life that God has called us to live. So the first point, believe in the gospel. The second point, believe in the gospel. Anyone want to, know, want to guess what the third application is? No, it's act like a son and not a slave. I, I set you up on that one. I, I did. Act like a son and not a slave. Because that's who you are. That's who you are. You have refrigerator rights with God. Live as a son. Err according to the promise. Paul writes this entire section of Galatians, talking about this new way of Jesus. And you know what his bottom line point is? If you are in Christ, you have a way, you have a connection with God that is far greater than anyone in all of history has ever had. Stop living in that old way and live in light of your identity as a son of God. Father God, thank you so much that you have made us your sons. Thank you that you have given us forgiveness. Thank you that you've given us life. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. And thank you that even though we might experience opposition, you have overcome and you have promised us glory in the end because your son has gloriously risen. We thank you. We pray that we would not mix legalism and the gospel, but that we would live in light of and rely upon the good news of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. And everyone said, amen.